Amen. Thank God that veil is torn and we have access. The veil is torn. That's why these doors are open um, in our church and every church. And that's why the doors of the kingdom are open. So thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you for singing out those songs, two of my favorites. Uh, we are in John 19 once again. Uh, this will be our third and final week in looking at John 19. Of course, uh, I think one of our studies at 18 blended over. And then we spent last week talking about uh, Pilate, um, his relationship with Caesar, and why that put him in a fix, making a decision what to do with Jesus. Uh, and now we are going to conclude our time in John 19, almost to the end of our time in John, but we, um, we've we made three weeks out of John 19, so who knows how many weeks we might make out of the next two, uh, next couple chapters. Um, you know, Easter rolls around every year, and I there's so much, you know, the Spirit of God always leads me to the different narratives in the Gospels, and there's only so many weeks there to kind of really preach in these texts, but the one thing that's been good about doing this Bible study in John is um, you guys come to the Sunday night study, you want to hear the word preached every verse, every chapter, so we can spend as long as we need to spend in any of these chapters. So we have gotten all, or trying to get all that we can, all that God has for us out of um, this text, out of the book, the gospel, the story that John has uh, written for us, the story of how he came to be convinced that Jesus was undeniably the Son of of God the Savior, of the whole world. Of course, you all being here for these Bible studies, you're already convinced. Uh, but if you ever find yourself in a conversation with somebody um, that uh, still needs a little persuading, I hope maybe our time in John has helped you uh, um, articulate and uh, sharpen um, your faith and your, um, your understanding of who Jesus is really is, and uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed um, this uh, leading us through this um, Bible study in the Gospel of John. Over a year ago, we began our time in John. John introduced us to, uh, introduced us to Jesus as the Word of God. Obviously, John 1.1 1, 1 in the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word was made flesh, and we beheld his glory um, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ walked into the pages of history as a baby grew up to be the man that made known um, God to the world. And he is continuing to make God known. The only way that God can be known is through the person of Jesus Christ. John said Jesus is the word of God made flesh. He also told us in that first chapter that Jesus was the divine blessing. He was the favor, the grace of God long sought after by the ancients. He was the divine blessing come from heaven to earth. And of course, after John's prologue, we're introduced to another John, last name Baptist, or not really, but you know the deal. Um, John the Baptist introduces Jesus to us as something else, something less abstract as the word of God, as the blessing from God, but something that is no less strange to use to describe a person, especially a person that you expect to be the Messiah, the King from heaven. John introduced us to Jesus. Obviously, we all know in John 1, the Jesus coming toward John, John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, when you take these three titles, these three descriptions, they really, uh, they really serve to have guide and inform our undeniable study. The Word of God, the divine blessing from God, the Lamb of God. In and of themselves, they might be easily defined or at least partially understood. But when you bring them together, it forces us to ask some questions and wrestle with a few things. The Word of God. The Word of God suggests something definitive. 
a declaration from the very core of God's being that God had one final word for the world, it suggests there's something definitive about it, something declarative about it, something that expresses the very core of who God is. As in, if you want to know who God is and what God is like, you better look at Jesus. So that's easy to understand in and of itself, I think. And when we think about the divine blessing, that suggests something elusive, a sought-after anointing, exclusively given by God. So again, that's easy to understand in and of itself. He is the divine blessing. He is the favor of God that so many sought after, the anointing from God that can only be given by God, by God's way. But the Lamb of God, what do you do with that? when you line it up with these other two very lofty, very ethereal, very big, you know, picture, big God from heaven ideals. The Lamb of God suggests something different than these two. And with our understanding of the Jewish sacrificial system, the Lamb of God suggests something submissive, a substitution of some sort. So do you understand why this one is kind of different? I mean, the Word of God, it's the Word from God. It's the, it's the idea of God made known. The blessing, it's the favor of God, the anointing from God sent to earth. But then you have this lamb. And lambs aren't necessarily this holy thing. Lambs are submissive. Lambs are something that are killed, whose blood is poured as a substitute for something else. The first two go hand in hand, but this one kind of makes you think. But after studying every chapter, nearly every word that John has written, we now, I think, can see the full picture coming together. Yes, Jesus is the final word of and from God. He is the final definitive word of God made flesh. He is the divine blessing. He is grace with a face if you will. If you want to know what grace is, look at, listen to, and follow Jesus because he will show you grace upon grace. We've seen both of these proven in his signs, in his wonders, in his conversations, in his sermons, but all along he hinted that he came for something more. Something that would punctuate the authority of God as in the word of God. Something that would put an exclamation point and an underline and highlight the authority of God, something that would provide the blessing of God far and wide. And what we've studied the last few Sunday nights from chapter 18 forward has brought us, brought us to this moment in time where we now clearly see how Jesus, the word in favor, God in a body, was also a lamb, the lamb, sent to take away the sin of the world. Perhaps the most powerful presentation and demonstration of Jesus' humanity is what we've seen in his arrest, his trial, and now in his sentence unto death. If you've ever wondered what God is like, we often turn to the miracles and the messages, but God would want us to focus in on these few chapters where we see Jesus, the Lamb of God. He isn't preaching great sermons. He isn't performing great miracles. He is sitting silently before authorities that had no power over him, yet he submits to them. As the Passover celebration continued into Friday, God was about to initiate a brand new Passover, one that wasn't just for a nation, 
but one that was for all of creation. And what is the most tremendous paradox, what truly spellbounds our simple minds? God in flesh did not come to rule or conquer, but to suffer and to die. Why? That's the question many would ask and would take years to figure out. It turns out the message was there all along, though. Jesus, all along the way, as he's been performing miracles, as he's been stating the word of God, showing the power of God, giving the anointing from God, all along he's been teasing out what he really came for. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He didn't give me to the world just to preach sermons. He didn't give me to the world just to anoint and show you my, his favor. Those things are important, but those things will only be truly understood when I am given, as in when I am sacrificed for all of you. We see at the night that Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper, he laid his outer garments aside, took a towel, tied it around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet. The night that they expected to end with a banquet feast where Jesus was coronated as their king after the parade, Hosanna, Hosanna, was saying that night didn't end that way. It led to this moment where he took a servant's towel around his waist and began to bow and serve and submit to these disciples and wash their feet, showing them he had not come to be served he had come to serve. So here Jesus is facing the unthinkable, death by crucifixion. The most brutal way anybody could ever die. A practice, an art of torture that the Persians invented. Of course, they didn't use crosses, they used beams, and they didn't hang people on them, they impaled people with them. Of course, the Greeks came along and said, well, that's kind of messy. We will hang people up on these crosses. We will figure out a more clean way to do it. Of course, the Romans would come after them, and they would figure out how to perfect it, not only in how clean it might would be for them, but in how torturous it would be on the person they were killing. We've talked for some weeks about how we ended at this place, or we ended up here, but now that we are here... I want us to soak up every word and every moment. Now, last week we read through the middle portion of 19 to get this whole story of Pilate, but we're going to back up and read the entire crucifixion narrative that begins in verse number 14. The story goes, John 19, 14, It was the day of the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, he said to the Jews, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest said, we have no king but Caesar. And he gave them no choice. Pilate delivers him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. But he did not immediately go to Golgotha. He did not immediately bear his cross. Jesus was brought out to this stone, this place called the stone pavement, where he was mocked, where he was prepared for crucifixion. The Romans had a really nice way to prepare someone for this moment. They would flog people. They would take someone's hands and they would handcuff them and they would tie them around 
a, po- a pole, a column, and they would pull out their famous cat of not infamous cat of nine tails. This scene would look something like this. The victim or the criminal in their mind tied to a pole, tied to a column, tied to a stump where he could not move. And they would take this cat of nine tails, this whip, and they would flog the person. Why would they do this if they were about to crucify them? Well, they had a reason. The Romans would, according to custom, scourge or flog a condemned criminal before they put them to death. The Roman scourge, also known as the flagrum or the flagellum, was a short whip made of two or three leather oxhide straps. Ropes connected to the handle as in the sketch, as in the picture that you see. The leather thongs were knotted with a number of small pieces of metal, zinc and iron, sharpened as much as they could be. Attached at various intervals, scourging would quickly remove the skin. The leather was knotted with bones, heavily indented pieces of bronze. And as they would whip the back of the person from their shoulders to their bottom, the goal was to rip as much flesh off as they could to where they would actually expose the spinal cord and strike every nerve to intensify the pain. Sometimes the Roman scourge contained a hook at the end and was given the terrifying name, the scorpion. The criminal was made to stoop, which would make the deeper lashes from the shoulder to the waist, and it would go as deep as it could, puncturing organs along the way. Scourging among the Romans was the most severe form of punishment, and there was no legal limit to the number of blows, even though the Jews tried to stop them at 39 Deep lacerations, torn flesh, exposed muscles, and excessive bleeding would leave the criminal half dead. And that's being positive. Death was often the result of this cruel form of punishment, though it was necessary, it was necessary to keep the criminal alive so they might be brought to public subjunction, subjunction on the cross. The centurion in charge would order the lictors to halt when he felt like the flogging was about to kill the person. Many who were sentenced to execution would never make it past this very spot, and the Romans would, would say, oh, too bad. But those that still endured would then be burdened with the horizontal beam of a Roman cross. The story tells us that Jesus did endure the flogging. Verse 17, he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him one on either side, and Jesus in the center. The story goes that Jesus struggled to crawl under the weight of both the beam and his pain, losing blood by the minute, by the pints. Eyewitnesses shared with Luke a little more of the story. As they led him away, they see Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. They laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus because Jesus was stumbling and crawling too slow. So Jesus, stumbling under the weight of the cross, losing more and more blood, the wood rubbed his raw, bloody back, and time slowed to a crawl. Suddenly, all the details, all the information, all the tidbits, all the gritty eyewitness reports that this story has come to be famous for, suddenly we no longer have any graphic details. All we get in verse 18 is they crucified him. Now, we know there was more to it. We've been told by history and extra-biblical recollections that crucifixion involved a very torturous process. 
But the gospel writers do not tell us about the nails. They don't tell us about being hung. Why is that? Because those alive in the original day, those that would have read this, those that would have been in John's original audience, they knew all too well what they crucified him meant. They had seen it. They had smelled it. They had been horrified by it. They didn't need any more details because they had seen maybe someone they loved dearly crucified. We haven't. But maybe it would help us if we got a glimpse. We don't know just what Jesus went through, but those sounds and those nails far too much for us to ever comprehend. Roman crucifixion was designed to bring about the most pain possible. Nails were hammered into one's wrist as to sever a nerve, bringing almost intolerable pain. As the cross was stood upright, the stress on the muscles would bring about debilitating pressure to one's lungs, causing cramps and eventually rupture to one's lungs. As the victim by nature fought to cling to life, every muscle would twist into knots, blood flow would cease, oxygen would deplete, pain would throbbingly intensify, and consciousness would slowly fade away. Cardiac arrest was just a heartbeat away for those that hang on the cross as the blood thickened, dehydration intensified, and gasping for air proved more and more futile. Meanwhile, the capillaries all over one's bodies from head to toe ruptured one by one, one after another. And for Jesus, things seemed even more intense. All the while, the soldiers mocked and ridiculed Jesus and his power, saying, if you could save others, why don't you save yourself? One could imagine the anger of God as he watched this scene of his beloved son suffering. Even if he had a plan, how could he watch this and not be filled with anger and rage for all of mankind? The sinful people that put him on this cross and the religious people that neglected it and the disciples that abandoned him. How could anyone allow this to happen to the Son of God? As Jesus held on to life and as God's anger must have bulled hotter and hotter, he whispered a prayer. That made no sense to anybody. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. As God from heaven looked on, observing the scene, no doubt ready to bring the wrath of hell on every person that was complicit in this crime, on every human that has ever sinned that led to this moment, Jesus interceded in this moment. Even though the sinning was being done to him, he interceded and said, Father, don't judge anybody. Forgive them. And I know what that means. If you don't judge them, you've got to have a lamb. 
This changed the course of events on this hillside. All of a sudden, according to Matthew and Luke, from the sixth hour, that's noon, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. Darkness covered the land, and while it was dark, the screaming and agony seemed to ramp up more and more. His blood loss was inconceivable, far more than the average crucified man. But even those up close and personal could not see what was going on, but they heard it. No one understood what was happening. For three hours, the sun's light failed to shine. Those up close stood still, frozen in time. Those on the hillside recall not being able to see anything, but they heard the moans and the shrills as God poured his judgment out on Jesus. No one could see it, but at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, Jesus had received every, all of the sin that was ever committed by anybody, past, present, future, saved or not saved, those who would believe, those who would not believe, every bit of sin was placed on him. And in that moment, every bit of wrath was placed on him as he interceded, as he was a substitute for you and for me. He was forsaken, judged for our sin, so that we might be forgiven of sin forever, saved by God. And at 3 p.m., the darkness passed, and the earth shook. People got a glimpse of Jesus once again. It was like the prophet Isaiah had predicted. Many were astonished. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of, a children, of the children of mankind. A piece of burnt, charred flesh hang in the place where Jesus once hanged. Oh yes, it was still him. But nobody could recognize him. Even the Romans looked and did not understand what had happened. They, they were good at torturing people, but not this good. Anyone who watched Jesus die that day would have been in disbelief. What a humiliating way for anyone to die, but especially for Jesus. As he appeared to be approaching the end, they realized this semblance of a man was still breathing. He was still talking, and it surprised everyone. Blood was covering the hill at this point. They tried to give him some medicine to numb the pain, but he wanted to experience the full measure of this pain. He refused it. But before his heart gave way, before his lungs collapsed, he made one last request down in verse 28. Jesus, knowing that all scriptures were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. He needed some drink so that he might could clear his throat. Of course, to insult him, they gave him sour wine because they weren't about to give him relief at this point. But he didn't want relief. He just needed to be able to speak and speak clearly. And with the last bit of vitality within him, he said, It is finished. One word. To tell us die. It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. They did not kill him. He gave up his life.
What was finished? Sin was finished. Every bit of it was washed away. Separation was finished. The separation between you and I, people and God, the veil was torn in the temple to signify this. Separation was finished. Judgment and condemnation were finished because Jesus was judged and condemned for us. The story goes on in verse 31. Therefore, because it was a preparation day that the bodies should remain, not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away to expedite the process. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And they did not break his legs. They didn't have to break his legs. He had bled to death. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Immediately, blood and water came out as if he hadn't bled enough. And when he who had seen this testified, and his testimony is true, he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John saying, I was there. I saw it. For these things were done that Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. You remember that story that Luke tells us when Jesus was a little boy at Passover and he was, got lost from his family and they found him in the temple and he was talking about the Bible and talking about God and they said, what are you doing here, Jesus? We've got to go. And he said, don't you know that I'm always going to be about my father's business? Even to the very end. That's what he was all about. The Lamb of God had bled to death. In doing so, he washed away the sin of the whole world. Of course, no one was making sweet, endearing theological connections when they saw this. Everyone walked away horrified, at loss for words, even the Romans. One Roman centurion beat his chest and said, this has to be a righteous man. He didn't deserve to die like this and have that same humility all along. Everybody walked away stunned, scared, and scarred for life. Well, almost everyone walked away without making any sort of connections. But the story tells us that there were two people there that were changed instantly by what they saw. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission so he came and took away the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, who had first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in the strips of linen with the spices as custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Nicodemus stood on that hillside that day, as was probably required by the Sanhedrin, to watch this nemesis, to watch this scoundrel Jesus who called them, caused them so much trouble, who almost costed them their entire operation. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea on the Sanhedrin were probably required by job to stand there in the crowd and watch this scene go down, standing from their complex, looking across the hillside through the masses of people. They could see perfectly Calvary's hill. From the Temple Mount. 
with his friend Joseph, they stood by and they watched, wondering what they had signed off on because they had to go along with this. They would have lost their job, maybe their life, if they opposed it. It was a unanimous decision to crucify him, yet Joseph and Nicodemus, two of the hundred on the Sanhedrin, could not stand what they had signed off on, and they wondered if they would ever be able to get over this. They stood by and watched, and they had been in constant conviction for the last three years. Do we go with Jesus or do we stay with our religion? They had chose to stay with their religion. Nicodemus, almost persuaded earlier, defended Jesus on more than one occasion, but always stayed in the comfort zone for fear of what it might cost him. And as they stood there from afar, I believe when they saw Jesus lifted up on that cross, it all began to make sense. As they watched him and heard him intercede for others while he hanged there, as they heard him cry, it is finished. I believe it all started coming back to Nicodemus. Jesus had told him, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. And as he looked that day across the crowd, and he saw Jesus be lifted up on Calvary's hill, that's when his eyes were wide open, and that's when he could see clearly. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that all who believes in Him might receive eternal life. And he remembered the other words of Jesus that night. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Suddenly, scriptures that had mem- they had memorized as kids came rushing back to them. The idea of a a Savior, the idea of a Messiah, the idea of a substitution, the idea of someone interceding, taking the place of their sin. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. And I think Nicodemus stood there and watched this night, this day, and he knew he was one that hid his face. He was somebody that did not esteem him, even though he knew who he was. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Nicodemus thinks I was complicit in this, and yet he did this for me. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my sins. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All of a sudden, Nicodemus began to realize that the wounds of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, was for our salvation. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. But Nicodemus stood there and watched he and Joseph with their mouths wide open because they watched the Lamb of God bleed out and die. And here's the most amazing thing. They did not feel guilty. Even though they wanted to feel guilty, they thought they should feel guilty. They did not feel guilty because they had watched the Lamb of God wash away their sin. And as they watched and as they believed, they felt born again. 
Their eyes were open. They saw the kingdom of God. They did not feel judged. They felt saved. They were saved. They didn't know what might come next. They knew that Jesus had not died in vain and they couldn't receive from him this gift in vain. So they bartered for his body. They laid him to rest, not knowing if they would ever see him again. They, on this side of things, they knew that they would definitely see him again in the next. They knew that Jesus had ushered in the kingdom of God. And while there was still plenty they had to figure out, one thing was certain. It was undeniable Jesus Christ was their Savior. He was your Savior. He is our Savior, the Savior of the whole world. Because they had watched in real time the Lamb of God take away their sin. And they could not explain the feeling they had. But they couldn't deny it either. God's final word would be spoken from a wooden cross. His elusive favor would be poured out on the darkest day. When the Lamb of God washed away all of our sin. To welcome us all to him. Take it from Nicodemus. On this day when he should have felt the kingdom of heaven's door shut in his face, he received an invitation by the Spirit of God to walk right in. They laid him to rest thinking it was the end of the story. But the story's not over yet. Not by a mile. But we hear this scripture and we marvel. And we are humbled. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Guilty, helpless, lost we were. Blameless Lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. He was lifted to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Not just a Savior, but your Savior and my Savior. Savior of the whole world. To whom we owe everything. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you so much for this powerful and clear, convicting presentation and description of the gospel. That you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to go through that for us. And like Nicodemus and Joseph, we stood by and we watched, and complicit as we were, the cross was not our judgment, it was Jesus's. And the salvation that he gives us from that cross continues to bring new people and new hope to lives that believe in him. And God, we are thankful that we get to sit on this side of things and rejoice at this amazing story. But we pray that you might would show this message to more people through our lives. That more and more people might understand what Jesus did for them, who Jesus is for them, the Lamb of God who washes away their sin and their guilt and their shame and gives them new life. We thank you, Lord, O Lamb of God, man of sorrows. We are not worthy to hear this good news, yet you don't ask us anything in return. We pray that we might give you our lives 
and measure up to the gift we've received. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.